Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the uh, director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the LSE. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you here all tonight to the third of this term's six uh, lectures on the future of the left. And it's a great privilege to uh, welcome Professor Eli Zaretsky, who's going to speak to us tonight. Professor Zaretsky is Professor of History at the New School for Social Research, and he's written widely on 20th century cultural history, on family history, and on the history of capitalism. And his books have been translated into an alarming 14 different languages. Um, some of you may be familiar with some of his most important works, Capitalism, the Family and Personal Life, The Polish Peasant, which was a study of immigration, and The Secrets of the Soul, a history of psychoanalysis. But he's going to talk to us tonight about his latest work, which is called Why America Needs a Left. And I just should pause here to indicate that the book is available for you all to um, acquire outside. And after um, Professor Zaretsky's finished speaking, he'll pause here for a little while if you want to come and have your book signed so that you have a special copy. Um, it's on the themes in that book that he's going to be addressing us tonight, so I um, ask you to welcome Professor Zaretsky to our series. Thank you, thank you very much. In, 18, in 1867, let me see if I can get this, it's probably going to be better. In 1867, E.L. Gotkin, the Irish-born co-founder of The Nation, commented on the wave of strikes that followed the American Civil War. In America, Gotkin wrote, the intense class feeling so apparent in Great Britain did not exist. In Europe, quote from Gotkin, the working man on a strike is not simply a laborer who wants more wages. He is a member of a distinct order in society engaged in a sort of legal war with other orders. In America, by contrast, the laborer doesn't consider himself the member of an order. He has a, quote, independence of feeling, a confidence in the future. He has the vote and the prairie, in other words, free land. Nearly 100 years later, Richard Hofstadter, Louis Hartz, and other Cold War intellectuals confirmed Gotkin's line of thought, which is often termed American exceptionalism. The United States, they argued, enjoyed a consensus concerning private property and what they called individualism, and therefore had no need for class consciousness. The consensus school's conviction that America has already achieved such goals as democracy and equality, goals that other nations were still striving toward, underwrote Cold War liberalism as well as neoconservatism. Still more recently, Barack Obama re reasserted the widespread view that America neither has nor needs a left. The left-right distinction, Obama remarked, is, quote, a psychodrama of the baby boom generation, a tale rooted in old grudges and revenge plots hatched on a handful of college campuses long ago. Sorry to interrupt. Is, is this, is this not working? Be, uh, this seems to be making an echoing noise. That I'm sorry. It, no, no, it's not you. I just wonder if something if can be done would, about it. There, it it's, a little, uh, it's a little uncomfortable. How, how is this? Is this better? Okay, let me sit there. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Did you follow the first paragraph? Okay. 
These claims, I argue in my recent book, is this working better? Why America Needs a Left, are false and misleading. The United States has not only always needed, but has typically had a powerful, independent, radical left. While this left has been marginalized, as it is today, and scapegoated, especially during periods of emergency or states of exception, the indispensable role of the left has shown itself during periods of crisis, periods when the country's identity was in question. In my book, I argue that the country has gone through three such crises, the slavery crisis culminating in the Civil War, the crisis precipitated by the rise of large-scale corporate capitalism culminating in the 1930s, and the present crisis, the crisis of neoliberal globalization, which began in the 1960s. Each crisis generated a left, first the abolitionists, then the socialists, and finally the new left. Together, these lefts constitute a tradition, one that has been central to US history. The core of the American left has been a challenge to the liberal understanding of equality, the formal equality of all citizens before the law. In place of that understanding, each of the country's three lefts sought to install a deeper, more substantive idea of equality. For the abolitionists, the issue was political equality, specifically the belief that a republic needed to be founded on racial equality. For the socialists and communists, the issue was social equality, specifically the insistence that a democracy could not exist unless all citizens enjoyed security in regard to basic necessities. For the new left, finally, the issue was equal participation, not only in formal politics, but also in civil society, the public sphere, the family, and personal life. In each case, the left sought to expand and deepen a hegemonic understanding of equality associated with liberalism. Far more than the struggle between left and right, the struggle between liberalism and the left is at the core of US history. Without a left, liberalism has become spineless and vapid. Without liberalism, the left, conversely, has become sectarian and authoritarian. In this lecture, I will argue this case in three steps. First, I want to clarify what we mean when we speak of a left. In my view, the left is both larger and different than socialism. But what exactly is it? I hope that a look at the specific character of the American left can at once broaden and make more precise the idea of a left in general. Second, I want to look at what we mean by crisis, since it is in periods of crisis that the left has proven so important in the United States. Finally, I want to describe the relevance of the left to America's three great crises, the Civil War, the Great Depression, and the present crisis, whose character remains to be defined. Part one, the idea of a left emerged along with the idea of revolution. Thus, it was closely associated with a crisis or break in the social order and the attempt to create something new. The iconic representation of the idea of a left was born in the French Revolution. The concept emerged when the older estates dissolved and the National Assembly was created in France in 1789. Those who sat on the left, the Jacobins, the Montagnard, came to represent the egalitarian social revolution while those who sat on the right to the drawn stood for the political revolution, which could coexist perfectly well with social and economic inequality. As Napoleon's conquests spread revolutionary ideals throughout Europe, the left-right distinction began to order seating arrangements within parliamentary democracies. 
being visual and spatial, the left-right dichotomy was immediately understandable and translatable across cultures. It may have been no accident, moreover, that the pro proponents of equality sat on the left. In every society, apparently, the right symbolizes dominance, authority, and God. The left symbolizes rebellion, danger, discontent, and the plebeian status, as well as dissension and disorder. Often, the very words right and left suggest these connotations. For example, recht, droit, and destra versus links, gauche, and sinistra. Because the distinction between left and right derives from the situation of the body in space, it has often been used to legitimate social power by seeming to ground it in nature. It may also be that the distinction is part of an elementary grammar by which we build up knowledge of the world, akin to up and down, forward and back, and inner and outer. In other words, it's a way of knowing, a mode of cognition. This suggestion gains force when we consider that there has been an historic shift in the nature of rebellion associated with the emergence of a self-conscious left. In earlier societies, rebellion took the form of anger at the failure of authority to live up to its obligations, to keep its word and faith with the subjects. Traditional rebellion, such as peasant uprisings or bread riots, accepted the existence of hierarchy and authority while attempting to make it conform to an idealized pattern. The left, by, by contrast, questioned whether we needed particular forms of hierarchy or authority, such as kings or capitalists or experts at all. Implicit in the project of the left, then, was a critical theory of society. Unlike France, America did not have a parliamentary system with left, right, and center parties. In its place, America developed a non-ideological two-party system. As a result, the term left was not widely used in a political sense in the United States until after the Bolshevik Revolution. The first American book that I have been able to locate, that I've been able to locate that uses the term left in its title in the political sense is David Sapos's Left-Wing Unionism, which appeared only in 1926. This did not mean, however, that America lacked a left before the Bolshevik Revolution. On the contrary, there existed powerful U.S. counterparts to the radical Democrats, utopian socialists, and communist revolutionaries of 19th century Europe. These included the radical wing of the abolitionists, what was later called the lyrical left of John Reed and Randolph Bourne, and an extremely militant working class and trade union movement. Nonetheless, the importation of the term left from Europe did make a difference. It permitted American leftists to reinterpret the history of U.S. radicalism as an ongoing tradition, which linked the socialists and communists of the Popular Front, who imported the term, to earlier abolitionists, feminists, pacifists, and so forth. The term's generalization also enabled post Bolshevik or communist movements to situate themselves in an ongoing tradition. So the radicals of the 1960s called themselves a new left. In spite of this contribution, the place of communism within the history of the left was deeply ambiguous. The reason was the communist break with liberalism. Marx argued that democratic revolutions were bourgeois revolutions and thus should be followed by socialist revolutions. Whereas the idea of the left originally presupposed a center and a right, Leninism wanted to occupy the total political space. 
It used the terms left, right, and center to describe differences on the left, for example, between Trotsky, Stalin, and Bukharin. Thus, orthodox Marxists conflated the left with revolution, whereas many leftists, including the great majority of the American left, presupposed liberal and democratic institutions and were committed to preserving and deepening them. Nonetheless, Marx's contribution to the history of the left is indispensable. When, de- when Marx described all of history as the history of class struggle, he gave us a conception of emancipation as a continuous struggle, which counted the notion, central to the liberal tradition, that we are already free, or that we live in free societies. Equally central, Marx is the only thinker who has provided a clear and lucid theory of capitalism, a social system organized through the division between capital and labor, and utterly distinct from a market or exchange society as described, for example, in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations or in the works of such contemporary economists as Paul Krugman or Joseph Stieglitz. Central to Marx's refusal to accept capitalism as as an historical endpoint was his insistence on seeing it as intrinsically crisis-prone. The American left inherited the idea of a crisis from Marx, not just the kind of economic crisis that characterized the Great Depression and that afflicts Europe and the United States today, but also broader crises reflecting Marx's influence on modern historiography, such as the crisis of the Middle Ages, the general crisis of the 17th century, or the crisis of the modern state. Part two. Let me turn now to the second part in my argument, which concerns the role of crisis in the history of the American left. We can learn much about the character of crises by considering the Greek word krino, from which the word crisis derives. Krino means to pick out, to choose, to decide, to judge. A crisis is not simply an economic breakdown or a war from which one needs to recover. More deeply, a crisis is a turning point during which fundamental decisions are made as to a society's future direction. Crises have narrative structures, as in the Greek tragedies, where the subject arrives at a decisive moment and must confront his or her fate. The heart of a crisis lies not in its objective character, but rather in the subjective self-awareness of the one who is undergoing it, in our case, the American people. It is during periods of crisis that the left becomes indispensable to the nation, so indispensable that the crisis cannot ever be truly resolved without a left's active involvement. To understand why, we must distinguish normal periods, emergencies, and crises in U.S. history. During normal or everyday periods, the country does tend to get along with such ideas as individualism, pluralism, and private property, and with calls for pragmatism, bipartisanship, and passing beyond the obsolete, so-called obsolete left-right conflict. During short-term emergencies, like the Alien and Sedition Acts of the 1790s, the Red Scare of 1919, or the McCarthy period in the 40s and 50s, the country reveals a surprisingly strong communal, religious, and ethno-national core. It comes together as a whole people, but in a panicky way, joining to expel the alien element. In crises, by contrast, Americans strive to form a new or revised agreement, an agreement on values, not a mere deal, compromise, or horse swap. 
While the left is present during normal periods and can be very important in resisting group pressures during states of exception, its special value lies in periods of crisis. To understand why, we must look more deeply into the nature of crises. In everyday politics, pragmatism and automaticity can prevail, but crises require a deeper examination of core values. In that examination, the liberal ideals of freedom and equality, which are the common sense of a democratic society like the US, come under a new pressure. In particular, the liberal view of equality as the formal equality of all citizens before the law comes to seem inadequate to many. The liberals' formal understanding of equality installs a deep ambivalence at liberalism's core. On the one hand, as Marx noted, this idea that the formal uh, uh, understanding of equality often serves to disguise ex exploitation. On the other hand, as Marx failed to grasp, it can also serve as the departure point for struggles to build a deeper, more substantive equality. Some political philosophers, such as Ronald Dworkin or Michael Walzer, believe that a consistent, vigorous liberalism can itself resolve this ambivalence. From a philosophical point of view, they may be right. I am no philosopher. But as a matter of historical understanding, it was only when a radical independent left put unremitting pressure on the liberal tradition that the country's past crises were resolved. Crises, furthermore, have a twofold character. On the one hand, they have a structural dimension. Each of America's three great crises was associated with an epochal transformation in the deep structure of American capitalism, primitive accumulation in, in the era of slavery, capital accumulation in the case of the Great Depression, and finance-led globalization in the case of the new left. Such crises were, were not merely economic crises, however resolvable by allowing the value of goods and services to decline sufficiently. Rather, they involve tectonic shifts in the nation's assumptions, values, and direction. Thus, crises have an identity dimension as well. They are redefinitions or refoundings of the nation's identity. To resolve them, the nation has to look inward and summon up its unconscious and inherited powers not just rely on its everyday commonsensical fund of assumptions. When the US does look inward, it gets in touch with the deep conception of equality, equality as the nation's telos, as its very raison d'etre, to which the left adheres. Let me turn now to the three crises to elaborate this idea. Third part. As I've said, the distinctive character of the American left is its close relation to liberalism, a relation at once tense and productive. We can see this if we think about American history as composed of two distinct but interwoven narratives. The first, which descends from the Revolution, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, highlights the continuous extension of existing rights to new subjects, such as freed the freedmen, women, and gays. The other narrative, which begins with the Civil War, stress, stresses punctual moments in which the meaning of freedom is rethought and deepened in light of the country's core commitment to equality. The first narrative is continuous, focused on the linear unfolding of what Americans call the blessings of liberty. The second is discontinuous, centered on the three great crises I have mentioned. The first views American society as inclusive and pluralistic. 
The second sees it as fractal and conflicted, divided along lines that are more difficult to discern than, but also not excluding, those of race, gender, and sexuality. The first narrative occults the role of the left. The second posits that each posits that each crisis generated a left crucial to its resolution, and that together those lefts constitute a tradition. Understanding American history as a series of three successive crises, and not as a unilinear unfolding, gives us a new view of America. In this view, the actual founding of the United States was centered on its commitment to equality and justice, not simply to independence. Each crisis required a refounding of the country, a transformation of its identity. In each case, moreover, it was a left that supplied an indispensable component of that refounding, namely its deep con a deep conception of equality that spoke to the country's identity. In each case, finally, it was the left's conception of equality that gave a meaning to structural reforms that would have otherwise remained ambiguous. Consider first the abolition of slavery. Beginning with the American Revolution, many Amer Americans opposed slavery, but most were content with reforms intended to encourage its gradual long-term decline, such as returning the slaves to Africa or limiting the area in which slavery could be practiced. By contrast, the radical or immediatist abolitionists who emerged in the 1830s, many of whom were free Negroes, linked the end of slavery to integrating schools and churches and accepting interracial marriages. They argued against those who denounced slave power but were unwilling to accept Negro children into their schools or abolish the so-called Negro pew in their churches. While the word white is on the statute book, argued the abolitionist editor Edmund Quincy, Massachusetts is a slave state. The abolitionists were the first American left. They invented the repertoire of the subsequent left, including door-to-door -door leafleting, demonstrations, nonviolent direct action, cultural and sexual experimentation, and a willingness to court martyrdom rather than give in to the majority. As with the Puritan forebears, one converted to abolitionism. Abolitionism was a sect, not a church. But what distinguished the abolitionists from the Puritans and justifies my designating them as a left was their connection to mass democracy. The whole point of the two-party system created in the 1830s and 40s was to keep so-called ideological or divisive issues, above all slavery, out of politics. By contrast, the abolitionists welcomed people of both sexes and races to their fairs, picnics, public meetings, and conventions. They created the first political arena after the Quakers where women spoke in public. The abolitionists and their contemporary radicals invented the distinctive tactic of the American left tradition, which is agitation. As Wendell Phillips explained, quote, a democracy functions morally only if it has agitators who devote themselves to stirring public opinion. Only by being shocking, insistent, and intransigent can an agitator overcome public apathy and inertia, which always favors the status quo. The aim of agitation was to win the public's heart to one's convictions, not to gain a particular reform. As Lydia Maria Child explained in 1842, 
Great political changes may be, the quote, may be forced by the pressure of external circumstances without a corresponding change in the moral sentiment of a nation. But in all such cases, the change is worse than useless. The evil reappears, and usually in a more exaggerated form. Later American lefts followed the abolitionist precedent in that they sought to destroy the codes of compromise, propriety, and pluralism that govern protest in a liberal democratic society. The Popular Front destroyed, socialists destroyed the identification with uplift, thrift, and social purity that had characterized earlier racial and ethnic protest movements. The 1960s sit-ins, which kicked off the new left, circumvented the fraudulent, quote, the fraudulent communication and self-deception through which whites had historically denied black self-assertion. In an almost visceral way, they expressed the dissatisfaction and anger of the black community that a century of mediation and black leadership had suppressed. Why was it necessary to explode the proprieties and rules that govern democratic participation? The reason was that the great reform of the day, the abolition of slavery in the first case we're discussing, was ambivalent in its meaning, capable of two different, even opposite, valences. In the words of the historian David Bryan Davis, the sense of self-worth created by dutiful work in the free labor system could become a way of disguising exploitation on the one hand, or a spur to redeeming the equality of people of subordinate status on the other. Without the abolitionists, slavery would eventually have been abolished. But the change would not have been linked to the project, however incompletely realized, of refounding the country on the basis of racial equality. The existence of a left gave the abolition of slavery its egalitarian meaning. It left a marker, even if the marker was later denied or ignored. The abolitionist left laid down that, that meaning for future generations. It remained latent and available for future reactivation. Furthermore, the abolitionist insistence on racial equality, not just the abolition of slavery, was eventually taken into the mainstream, as in Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. To live it in the midst of the Civil War, Lincoln insisted that the Declaration of Independence's proclamation that all men are created equal was, quote from Lincoln, of no practical use in effecting our separation from Great Britain. It was placed in the Declaration, not for that, but for future use, by which Lincoln meant emancipation. This concept of future use runs through the history of the American left as each successive incarnation took up the marker left by its predecessor, transformed it, and left it in turn for those who came after. The first American crisis, Civil War, had two dimensions, a structural dimension centered on the implications of slave expansion for control over the federal government, and an identity dimension centered on racial equality. Although the structural dimension might have been addressed in any case, the identity dimension required a left, which gave abolition the meaning of racial equality. <coughs> the same constellation of a structural crisis, can you pour me a little mm. water, thank you. The same constellation of a structural crisis linked to an identity crisis is true of the second American crisis, which centered on the rise of large-scale corporate capitalism. Not only technological and economic, the second crisis thank you, arose from the widespread perception among Americans 
that the rise of the large corporations or trusts had created a new system of quasi-feudal estates. The dividing line was not so much worker versus capitalist or native-born versus immigrant as between those who could maintain a basic level of security in their lives and those who could not. The crisis of the 1930s required, as Franklin Roosevelt put it, a reappraisal of values, a new direction for society. The goal was not merely recovery, but rather refounding, analogous to that of the Civil War. The heart of the second refounding was a new role for the state, the culmination of a long series of struggles in the 19th and early 20th centuries by labor movements, populists, and progressives, the New Deal original idea for the state was planning the so-called panacea of the age. Incidentally, it's a phrase from Lionel Robbins, who was a professor here, and you have a building name for him. But the second American left emerged as a critique of business-dominated technocratic planning. Thus, the socialists and communists insisted that only an organized working class, including but not restricted to industrial unions, could have the heft to bend market forces to meet popular needs. The great legacy of the second left was not the idea of public ownership, but rather the transformation of American democracy via the mobilization of the lower classes. Without the left, the American state would have been transformed in any case but what might well have assumed a more nationalistic, intolerant, racist, anti-Semitic, and in a word, fascistic character like its counterparts in Germany and Italy, or become bureaucratic and dictatorial as in the Soviet Union. As it was, the New Deal was inflected with the values and meanings created by a broad-based series of social democratic and anti-capitalist movements, including those among industrial workers, African Americans, so-called illegal immigrants, and women. The New Deal in general, and Franklin Roosevelt in particular, are often credited with saving liberal democracy, meaning that when other nations turned to fascist and communist solutions, the United States held fast to its founding ideals. This is true, but it's not the whole truth. Liberalism survived the Great Depression only by appropriating principles of social equality pioneered by the left. The point, once again, is that the New Deal reforms were ambivalent in their meaning. Just as slavery would have been ended without the abolitionists, so the modern state would have been created without the socialists. Such a state was necessary to unify the masses of immigrants, ethnic groups, regions, states, and localities that constitute our vastly heterogeneous and internally divided continent, heir to the decentralized, self-governing British imperial system. Such a state was also needed to organize elites, rationalize new forms of knowledge and technology, and provide the planning and research, the centralized flexible forms of credit, the management of capital, the investment in the underdeveloped parts of the country, the South and the West, all of which the New Deal did or tried to do. But without the left, none of these activities would have been associated with the ideal of social equality. Elaborating the ideal of social equality, both for current and future use, the socialists provided an egalitarian meaning to the otherwise conflicting and particularistic tangle of laws and agencies that was the New Deal. The role of the left can also be seen in relation to Keynesian spending, the New Deal's most lasting attempt at a systemic reform. On the one hand, government spending could be interpreted in terms of an apolitical ideology of growth, 
growth in quotes, and concentrated on military expenditures, in which case Keynesianism would be vulnerable to the politics of the budget deficit or austerity as in the 1970s and again today. On the other hand, the problem that Keynes called inadequate demand could also be interpreted as aiming to reduce and eliminate structural inequality, as it was with the Wagner Act, which put the force of the government behind unions, and with Social Security, which turned one of the poorest segments of the population, the elderly, into one of the most secure. To the extent that the New Deal aimed at structural inequality and not at growth alone, it was thanks to the second American left. Thus, just as the abolitionists helped put racial equality at the, second, at the center of American history, so the popular front leftists put social equality there. Finally, let us turn to the new left. Of the three case studies I have written about, the new left is the most difficult to comprehend. This is in part because it is still recent and its historiography is just beginning, and in part because of its diversity, as it was composed of many movements, including the radical wings of the civil rights and Vietnam War movements, new and unexpected forms of social protest, such as ecology, second wave feminism, what's called women's liberation and gay liberation, and it, and, and it took place in new sites of struggle, such as schools, prisons, and hospitals. Above all, in, in understanding the new left, I need to address the following question. In what sense can one claim that the new left confronted a long-term crisis comparable to the crises of slavery and industrial capitalism comprising both a structural and identity dimension? By the new left, I mean what was then called the movement. The activists of the 60s who intervened in the three great mass movements of the time, civil rights, anti-war, and feminism. In calling itself new, the new left sought to distinguish itself from the old left, the socialists and communists of the popular front. The difference lay in the different stages of capitalism from which the two lefts arose. From the old left point of view, the emancipation of man from nature depended on building up collective institutions, such as trade unions, and on gaining influence and ultimately control over the state. By contrast, the new left arose not from the accumulation of labor, but from the release of first world labor from direct engagement in material production. In other words, from the scientific, technical, technological, and educational revolution that has produced the wealth of our time. The increasing productivity of labor was experienced in the 60s under such rubrics as affluence, automation, and the triple revolution. In the 70s as deindustrialization, in the 80s and 90s, as the international spread of finance and services, and today as an unemployment crisis based on global overcapacity and on fiscal austerity imposed by banks. Beginning after World War II, capital organized itself globally as the United States first sought out foreign markets and then invested abroad. The disaggregation of market forces, their global dispersal and escape from state controls was associated socially with massive immigration flows and the rise of the two-earner family, and intellectually with what Daniel Rogers has called the age of fracture, meaning the return of neoclassical economics, the rational choice revolution in political science and sociology, the reduction of psychoanalysis to neurobiology, and the postmodern attack on subjectivity. The new left emerged at the beginning of this process, the 1960s. In the words of Samuel Huntington, the essence of the democratic surge of the 60s was a general challenge to existing systems of authority, public and private, 
people no longer felt the same compulsion to obey those whom they had previously considered superior to themselves in age, rank, status, expertise, character, or talents. Discipline eased and differences, uh, differences in status became blurred. Authority based on hierarchy, expertise, and wealth ran counter to the democratic and egalitarian temper of the times. Within this context, Kristen Ross, writing of France, called the New Left's distinctive characteristic disidentification, meaning freedom from the imposition of social roles. May 68, Ross writes, had little to do with the social group, students or youth, who were its instigators. It had much more to do with the flight from social determinants, with displacements that took people out of their location in society, with a disjunction, that is, between political subjectivity and the social group, a shattering of social identity that allowed politics to take place. These brief considerations of the period give us a clue as how to situate the new left within the overall history of, of the American left and really of America. There would have been a cultural revolution in the 1960s had there never been a left. One did not need a left to see that the 60s marked the first full-scale emergence of mass consumer culture with its uninhibited vibrancy and sex appeal, its reliance on youth and on racial and sexual subcultures, its unprecedented international exchanges in design, music, film, its rights revolution, and its massive entry of women into the labor force. One did not need a left to see that Cold War liberalism had produced a democratic faith lacking in deeper emotional resources. One did not need a left to see that this lack might encourage a religious awakening shown not only in the importance of religion to the civil rights movement, but also in Zen, Indian music, meditation, and the Christian search for existential authenticity. Without the new left, one would likely still have had the Beatles, the Grateful Dead, Hare, Pop Art, Jimi Hendrix, John Kennedy, Marshall McLuhan, Buckminster Fuller, Mary Quant, Color TV, Jet Travel, Transistors, and The Pill. One did need a left, however, to break through the iron vice of Cold War thinking, to expose the alliance between Democratic Party liberals and Mississippi segregationists, to face the, to grasp the co corporate and military control of the universities to face the shocking sycophancy of American intellectuals in the face of power, to acknowledge the almost incalculable extent to which the government lies to its people, especially concerning war, to grasp the continuity between racism, colonialism, and the war in Vietnam, to see that schools, prisons, and doctor's offices were sites of power, to develop critical subfields in every academic discipline, to see sexism as a deep structure of human history, not simply a form of discrimination, and to build ties of solidarity with the poorest people on the planet, with homosexuals, women, and racial minorities. Like its predecessors then, the new left brought an egalitarian meaning to a major structural transformation of capitalist society. The effects of the new left on American society and culture have been almost incalculable. incalculable. An entirely new consciousness of both race and gender has transformed language, lifestyle, and institutions. There is a persistent skepticism uh, toward American intervention abroad. Academic life has been transformed, not only by the entry of minorities and women, but also by the creation of whole new subfields and by the critique of canonical knowledge. A host of new political issues, including abortion, gay marriage, and ecology, occupy center stage. 
a moral revolution in the treatment of prisoners, the mentally ill, patients, and immigrants occurred. The churches, especially, but not only the Catholic Church, developed liberation theologies. The election of a black president in 2008, whatever is politics, testifies to the impact of the civil rights movement. We're only at the beginning of understanding the full implications of the attack on patriarchy and on compulsory heterosexuality and of the questions of identity that opened up in the early 70s. Yet the new left today is widely considered a failure, and this must be directly addressed. Two different senses of failure need to be distinguished. In one sense, the left will always fail because it stands for sometimes utopian ideals that cannot and will not be realized in the immediate present. This failure is actually a form of success because it means the left is guided by the long-term project of deepening e equality. At the same time, there is another sense in which the identity aspects of the contemporary American crisis outran the systemic aspects. By that, I mean the emotional underpinnings of the 60s upheaval were not accompanied by public rational understanding of the historical situation of the country and the problems that confront it. In this sense, we can look at the experience of the new left as Lincoln looked at the Declaration of Independence, as having been registered for future use. The new left has to be our marker for thinking through the problems of the present. The reasons for the marginalization of the left that began in the 1970s are complex, but it's worth noting that the loss did not occur overnight. The country hovered between left and right for most of the 1970s, and contrary to appearances, never decisively shifted to the right. There never was what political scientists call a critical election, establishing a mandate for Reagan or Bush comparable to the elections of Lincoln in 1860 or Roosevelt in, in 1932. Many episodes since then, including a factitious impeachment, a stolen election, two misguided wars, and an almost unbelievable series of missed opportunities, including 1989, 2001, and 2008, testify to a deepening sense among Americans that their country is in a long-term and hard-to-comprehend difficulty. Given the antinomianism released in America by the 60s, may, one may well argue that what America needs today is scarcely another left, but rather more respect for authority, leadership, and responsible and meritocratic elites. I have much sympathy for this argument, but against it, or at least with it, lays the weight of American history as I have presented it here. In America's previous two crises, it was a reconceptualization of the commitment to equality that paved the way to a successful resolution. Let me end by restating four major points that have been central to this argument. First, the history of the American left has been discontinuous and episodic. The left has gained prominence only in moments of upsurge, occupying perhaps 30 or 40 years of the nation's 250 years of history. Second, the period in which the left gained prominence were periods of crisis, by which I mean not so much wars or economic downturns, but rather periods in which the country's core values needed to be interrogated and a new, new direction mounted. Third, in such periods, the left does not provide a solution to the crisis. Many factors, such as leadership, the liberal tradition itself, and the global configuration must converge before a crisis can be resolved. Nonetheless, the left's contribution is indispensable. It lies in its passionate commitment to equality. That commitment helps provide an egalitarian meaning 
to the structural transformation which resolves the crisis. Finally, the key dynamic in American history is not left versus right, and certainly not a vacuous center, but rather the argument between the left and mainstream liberalism. The left, at its best, is deeply engaged with the liberal tradition. That, I believe, is one lesson we can take from Ralph Miliband, in whose honor we are gathered here tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much for a, a wonderfully wide-ranging and um, conceptually astute as well as historically rich as we would expect a presentation. It's, it's excellent to see an argument Thank built you. up like that and I'm sure there are going to be many people with many questions. So I just, um, can I start? I'll just take one or two and then see how many there are. We might take them in larger numbers. Yes, up the back. Hi there, thank you for the presentation. Um, you argue that the uh, that the left performs a kind of articulative role that it. Um, oh, sorry, could, I'll, I'll speak close. You, you argue that the left performs a uh, articulative role in that it tries to um, uh, and tries to understand reforms which are going to happen anyway, um, or tries to tries to uh, allow people allow people to understand these reforms in a certain way. But but it seems to me that that's inevitable given your starting point, which is that the left is a, a sort of a, 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 a movement of rebellion and a sort of an anti-power movement. And my question is really, is, is, there a po is, is, is it possible for um, there to be a left-wing American government? Is it possible for there to be left-wing, uh, for the structural reforms themselves to be left-wing? Or would you ever describe any uh, American administration as left-wing? or any particular particular policy program like the Great Society or anything like that? Or is it not possible for them to be described as left? Right. Um, I, I, I do think uh, that it's possible uh, for uh, the United States to have uh, a left uh, president or a left in power. Uh, the 1936 election, uh, Roosevelt was very, very clearly articulating, uh, a, a, you know, a, a shift to the left. I, I mean, that had global implications, uh, and uh, he he was the president. Now, I mean, he was, you know, he said, "I am a Christian and a Democrat." He didn't say, "I'm a person of the left." And uh, but it was it, 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 it was very clear that uh, we needed a government that would benefit. Um, you know, ordinary people, and people wrote to Roosevelt after that election, and and they said it was like Lincoln was like the emancipation of the slaves, and uh, so forth. And similarly, uh, in and, and that created um, a very powerful um, tradition in the Democratic Party, which uh, when you come into the 60s, uh, you know, was was still uh, basically tending toward the left. And Johnson in 1960, President Lyndon Johnson uh, in 1964, certainly again did not identify himself uh, with the with the left, but he did identify himself with the, with the civil rights movement, and he understood the basic. Um, questions of the left, because Johnson himself, in his in his Howard University speech, he said, "We, we, we, the American people, the American government, with the great great society and so forth, capitalizing on on the um, assassination of Kennedy, we're going to bring about substantive equality, not just equality in possibilities, but equality."
quality um, in results, and, and people said, how can we afford it? And he says, we can do anything. We're the greatest people in the world. We, we definitely could, you know, have afforded it. Uh, but then, of course, he took the country into the war in Vietnam, and that, uh, that destroyed it. It's sort of basic to my analysis that the left and the liberal tradition have to be independent. I think there's an enormous power uh, in the liberal insistence on formalism and on proceduralism and on sort of not weighing in on sub substantive questions. Uh, and equally, I think there's a, a, a you know a terrific power in uh, the left's insistence on what the substance of equality um, is. So that's sort of you know I don't know if that's a full answer to your question, but that's how I would answer your question. It's not impossible. I mean, Obama could have, uh, when he was elected in 2008, could have opened, not that he would have been on the left, but he could have opened uh, much more of progressive possibilities for the United States, and there would, there would have been much more of a response uh, then. It comes in periods of crisis, which, the, which 2008 certainly was and is. Okay, the gentleman here in the purple shirt. Sorry, uh, thank you. Um, you spoke of the central political uh, contest in American life being between mainstream liberalism and the left, and that leads me to wonder, what is the role of the American right in our politics, especially in times of crisis? Are they, do you consider them part of mainstream liberalism? Because uh, as Corey Robin pointed out, the essence of conservatism is inequality. Are they Who pointed out? Uh, Corey Robin oh, wrote okay. uh, The Reactionary Mind. But okay. Um, do you consider them part of mainstream liberalism, or are they something else? Or no, I mean, um, I think that uh, first of all, I, I would draw a distinction. I'm, I'm here uh, really centering on on the United States. I would draw a distinction between conservatism and the right. The right that re it really actually arose in the late '30s, and then you know you see the Goldwater movement in the '60s, and then you know, sort of doesn't quite come to power, but almost almost comes to power. I draw a distinction between them. So conservatism is like Burkean conservatism. We, we have a little bit of that in the United States. It's never been very strong. It's looking towards traditional institutions and judges and, and things like that. Uh, but the right is really a reaction in the United States. It's a reaction to these great transformative moments when you see the convergence of liberalism and the left. And the basic thing the left ha uh, that the right has to do is destroy the left. It has to attack the left, and it, by attacking the left, it attacks the liberals because it de deprives the liberal mainstream of its its guts in a way, its 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 heart. Uh, which is so much connected with its relation, critical relation, um, uh, to the left. Uh, so, I mean, this is what the McCarthy period um, did. It attacked the new, it really wanted to attack the New Deal. But the way it attacked the New Deal was by calling it communist. And the same thing uh, after Reconstruction, you know, we really, uh, the, Ku Klux, the rise of the first Ku Klux Klan, which was a response to, uh, to Reconstruction. Uh, was again uh, because you had this very great moment when Lincoln, who did not believe in racial equality, and the abolitionists who did, converged at the time of the Civil War. And there was a great learning experience for Americans about this fundamental question of, of racial equality. So I basically see the right as um, as a response uh, to these uh, to these uh, great moments. It's also interesting, uh, and this is a, a complicated issue that um, I, I really 
only have an idea about, I, I, you know, is, is the way in which the right took up a lot of the language of the left and uh, presented itself as a kind of, in the, in the United States, as itself the outsider and against the elites and so forth. This is pretty fundamental to understanding the American right. Okay, um, there's a gentleman over there. And then... uh, t two points. <clears throat> Would you understand that uh, for us in Europe, um, your definition of the left is sometimes difficult for us to grapple with and to get to grips with, uh, particularly when we hear what, is the Europe, what we regard as the European social model uh, described uh, in the United States, not just by the right, but uh, described as extreme and socialist, whereas most of us here would just right. think of it as centrist and social democratic. And the second point relates basically to the growing inequity in the United States. And having lived there, it's something that I find very difficult, right. find very difficult when I was there. And that is the extremes of wealth and poverty. Right. You go down to Wall Street and you see, you know, you see the huge amount of wealth. And then you go beyond uh, 90th Street in the east side or uh, 120th Street in the west side. And you basically are somewhere to us that resembles Chechnya, you know, bombed out, burnt out. Uh, with projects into which you just dare not go. Most of us here can go into council estates with a feeling of so some security. Why do you think that the new left has not grappled with that growing inequity? Why has Occupy Wall Street, for example, been so incoherent in the positions that it's put forward? Right. Well, I mean, first of all, on the, uh, uh, on the question of uh, the differences between the American left and, um, and, and the European left, and also, you know, we have lefts all over the world. There's, there are several different kinds of lefts uh, in China and in Latin America where you, you know, and so forth. So this question of how to understand what it is that characterizes the left globally is, is another question. And what I am trying to do in this talk is say something that is very specific about the United States and in no way do I consider, you know, what I'm saying to characterize the left in general. The United States has a you know, there's a very strong liberal center uh, uh, tradition, and that has defined a particular kind of uh, left for the United States. Now, as far as the uh, growing inequality uh, in, uh, in the United States and whether the new left has, uh, so-called new left has addressed uh, this question, I mean, there's two parts to this. I mean, uh, this inequality uh, that we have uh, is, uh, in many ways, it's fundamentally new, and it's fun and what I'm arguing, it's, it's fundamentally antithetical uh, to core American values. I mean, it's horrible, um, and it's unbearable, really, I think, for a lot of people to live in, in uh, societies that where, where, where you have uh, the kind of differences that have... Uh, uh, that have developed in the United States, and that is that's my that's what I'm arguing. Uh, I'm arguing that we need an, a left today that can address uh, that question. <coughs> now, I don't consider that we have uh, the new left in in uh, the United States today. I try to explain uh, in my talk that in many ways the new left was a very brief moment. Uh, in the in the 60s and 70s, and that it faded. But in terms of understanding where we are today, I still think that's the point of that has to be the point of reference for us. That's where we, that's where where we start. But you know, the potential for a left in the United States today 
was shown by Occupy Wall Street. The minute that those demonstrations took place, I think it's September 21st uh, of uh, last year, I mean, the whole country responded. And immediately, people started talking, for the first time in 30 or 40 years, they started talking about social class in the United States, which they had never talked about. Obama completely changed his rhetoric. It gave him a language that he hadn't had, um, uh, you know, until then. But, of course, Occupy Wall Street, it's the same thing when I was young. Um, we had been cut off from a left tradition by McCarthyism. We had to start over in the 1960s. We had to relearn the whole history and the whole legacy. It wasn't allowed to be a continuous history because it had been suppressed and wiped out as, as un-American. Something very similar really happened in the United States after the 70s, beginning in the 70s. And I think people uh, today, these young people on Occupy Wall Street, or my students at the, at the news school and so forth, they are so much the product of the 60s. They are so much have the spirit of the new left in terms of equal participation, in terms of their sensitivity on sexism and racism and so forth. But, you know, they really don't um, have the history, and that's why I wrote my book. Uh, they don't have the history, they don't have the uh, the legacy, and, and so forth. But, you know, just as it happened has happened before, I don't think we're going to get out of the situation that we're in in the United States without it happening again. Thank you, Professor. Uh, as an American now living in Europe, I, I agree in, in part with the previous uh, question is, um, Critique of the uh, the version of the left that you you posit for for the Americans versus what's what's commonplace in Europe. Anyway, back to your your comments about America. I'm a little bit puzzled by this notion of this rising left that comes uh, to cohesion and power almost uh, during moments of or decades of crises, and then uh, fade away almost as if giving up. So, like for, for instance. The first right. left, as you described, they won the war right. with the liberals, and then they basically left the South to be in, uh, right. in Jim Crow territory for the next 50 years, 60, right. 70, 80 years. Right. Uh, the second left that you mentioned, uh, they won and got the New Deal, right. and then for the next 30, 40 years, I don't know if America was ever more corporatist and authoritarian, of course, partly because of the Cold War. Yeah. And then the third left, um, they, they focus on individual freedoms, you know, um, sexual, uh, gay rights, etc., and they've watched um, the rich become, you know, ten, five times more richer than in the 70s than compared to now. So it seems like a very strange left that you are describing that comes, completely fades, almost like amnesia, or focuses on a new battle and ignores all the previous ones. So yeah. it's a very puzzling left lefts that you're describing. Yeah, no, I, uh, I agree with you. Uh, it, is, it is puzzling, uh, and if I were to invent the United States of America out of whole cloth, I would give it a sort of continuous left that would, you know, that would, would have much more continuity and would hang in there so that after the Civil War, the abolitionists wouldn't just fold up their tents and go home and, and uh, so forth, but it actually didn't happen that way. Um, and, but also, I, I, I think I have a great deal of uh, appreciation uh, for the American left. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
when we think about the left, we have to also we have to think about Stalinism. We have to think about uh, the crimes uh, that were committed in the names of the left in the past. Whether to even use a term uh, like the left, the mistakes that were made, uh, the 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 belief in socialism as a kind of magic bullet. Uh, you know, that uh, predominated the lack of an understanding of, of psychology and culture that pervaded the second left, for example, the um, many ways, narrowness of the, of the new left. So, uh, you know, it's, you're right. It's a peculiar left. Uh, it's a left that has dropped the ball uh, at various times. It's actually much more complicated because it's been suppressed. It's been attacked. I mean, including in the first case uh, in the South. I mean, the role of of the freedmen in 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 the schools and in government and so forth was violently suppressed in the in the 1860s and the 1870s and the 80s and so forth. And the, you know, the McCarthy period was was, a, was again was a, a violent suppression. Um, and, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with your characterization. Still, it has an incredible amount to recommend it, and I, I mean, I'm very proud to be associated with that tradition. Yes, Christina. I was just curious that one thing I find interesting is that um, quite often you hear uh, usually even from the left this notion of equal opportunity and that that is sort of the core uh, notion of what is meant by equality in the in the United States um, and you talked about this the notion that the left is that they seek to deepen uh, that concept of equality that that's their sort of long-term project so I'm wondering what you what you think in terms of the, that, that relationship between say a, a deeper notion of equality and that concept of equal opportunity which I find keeps coming up as, as the, I guess, the, the core ideal um, when you hear, especially I, I see a lot of people on the left speaking of equal opportunity as, as the fundamental goal and whether you think that that needs to be, it needs to be deeper than that. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, it's a good question. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, I, I, my answer is yes. Uh, the purpose of a left is to deepen uh, the idea of equal opportunity. So uh, Americans agree about um, about equal opportunity, but a left has to do much more than um, just equal opportunity in the sense of breaking down barriers of. Uh, of uh, uh, discrimination. We have to have. Um, we have to. Have a handle on, on the whole on the whole explosion of capitalism and the whole explosion of technology and the ecological crisis uh, that uh, is uh, going on. We have to have a handle on the world capitalist uh, system, and, and, and I'm not talking about government ownership or st you know state planning, but uh, 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 an influence on it because we are creating a, a, a two-tier world where, if you think about it in American terms. Uh, you think about it globally, um, you know, something like a quarter or a third of the population is going to live very well. They're going to have jobs and so forth. And another third or half is, is they're not going to be jobs for, for people. We, we, we have to uh, think about it. So um, this, uh, the question of, uh, of, of equal opportunity uh, is, is, uh, is not enough. We have to, uh, have to push it. Okay. Um, yes, Lynn. Um, 
And your view of the left obviously is optimistic. And I can mm. very much relate to your saying we'll always need a left uh, mm -hmm. and it will always be in conflict with the liberal tradition and it will always up to a point be utopian. That's very easy to relate to. But I think what so many of the questions have been getting at is the difficulty in believing in any possibility of any type of left government in the US. And I take that most strongly from all the left voices I know in the US, which are so very anti-statist. And if I read people writing about the Occupy movement, whether it's yeah. Simon Critchley or all sorts of other people, even if I read Wendy Brown or Judith Butler, on the whole, they have no hope in their being a left which can stand up to American capital or, or global capital. And, and uh, uh, many of them are returning to anarchist traditions of trying somehow to think about mass movements and then in some way which I can't imagine moving from mass movements using Negri or someone else from mass movements towards a global form of resistance that could create something new. But what I don't see any sign of are um, calls upon the state, talk about social democracy. I, I, that, I don't hear that voice coming or the idea that there really is an alternative in the US to global capital. So what's the relationship between revolutionary movements, reform or social democratic activity and the state in the US? That's yeah. what it seems so hard to see. Yeah, I, uh, let me just say I'm not optimistic. Uh, I, I, I think that, that that's not right. Uh, I am I'm an optimistic person. My character is optimistic and uh, you know I'm trying to draw out what is positive uh, in, a, in, a, in a certain history. Uh, but in no sense uh, would I say I'm optimistic or that I see a left, uh, what I would call um, a left, and I call the book Why America Needs a Left, not the left. Uh, uh, no, no sense, uh, I don't see a left forming in the United States. But I do believe that ultimately, you know, rational argument, um, as Habermas says, you know, the force of a powerful argument. And I think I'm making a powerful argument uh, that is, is not there. So I think we're in a moment where, um, uh, as weak as it seems, uh, globally or in the Western world, uh, you know, there's not going to be a solution without a left. And I think it was perfectly obvious in 2008 when Barack Obama ran, because the only way he ran was to articulate something like a new progressive uh, direction for the United States. He just didn't act on it when he became president. But uh, I mean, I, I, I think something like that has to take place. And I, and, and, and I do agree with you that the dominant voices that present themselves on the left, well, I mean, there are different kinds of people uh, who identify uh, with the left. Oh, certainly Occupy Wall Street is completely anarchistic and, and they, they really don't understand uh, uh, the Importance of the state and the importance of the social debt, but there, you know, just Occupy Wall Street is just this—it's just this amazing kind of spontaneous upsurge among these kids. You know, they are wonderful, but you know, they don't. Uh, a lot of the sentiment uh, that has come down, uh, you know, from uh, from the new left is um, is anarchist, like Simon Critchley uh, and. Uh, 
um, and so forth. But then, you know, there are other people I happen to have a lot of admiration for. Noam Chomsky's 82 years. You know, I think about this question about whether a left is possible. And I think to myself, you know, given the noise in the public sphere, given the way that public discourse actually works in the United States, which is almost, it's just, it's cacophony. I mean, it's just very hard. And I do identify a left with a kind of, you know, rational thing. And then I think about someone like Chomsky, who's 82 years old and gets on a train and goes down to the National Archives in Washington to do research on American foreign policy in Guatemala so he can write about about it with real uh, evidence, and it's just an inspiring testament to people who still believe in in rationality. So I'm putting this out here as um, another way to think of the uh, left, not just, you know, uh, for example, there's Mike Kazin's book on American Dreamers, or I haven't read T.J. Clark's uh, essay in um, New Left Review, but there are a lot of people who say, well, the left should, should deal with, you know, small things, or its contribution was to culture and not really, you know, to the big things, have given up on, you know, the big things. And I'm arguing here that the, the, the left's contribution in America, at least, and I don't think it's only America, uh, but I'm arguing that the left's contribution has been to the big things. It's to give the meaning to these big things, uh, to the abolition of slavery and, um, and, and to the creation of a welfare state. And we still don't know really what, we don't know really how to give shape. I'm trying to figure out how to really think about our times historically in a full way. <clears throat> okay, um, can we have Sally please? <coughs> Thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Eli. Thank you, Zoe. Um, yes, I just wondered if I think you are sort of in your last remarks just now um, answered the question I'm about to ask you, which is that in this phase of the new left, the kind of post '56 phase, as I understand, post Cold War um, phase of the new left. I mean the. Uh, you know, there is much less clarity. I mean, you evoked wonderfully in rather an inspiring way, actually, um, for those of us who are beginning to forget what the new left might have meant over the last 50 years. But, um, but you did leave out two things. One is internationalism and the other is, well, no, less so, but economic ideas. And one of the things... Would you agree that one of the things that has been lost or forgotten by this stage of the new left, as you define it, is uh, any hope that, that markets can be um, controlled in a different way? Because one of the characteristics of the, of the, of the left in the 30s was, as you said, there, was social, there were ideas about social security, about you know, building up demand, about... Um, welfare reforms, and it's as though the left has no idea now how to generate wealth to eliminate inequality, to produce jobs, yeah. to create jobs in which young people can find employment. Yeah. No, uh, I, I, I agree. I mean, uh, I mentioned uh, the, the example of uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, and uh, the left's relationship, uh, the new left's relationship uh, to uh, 
the Kennedy and Johnson administrations before the war in Vietnam exploded uh, everything. And it was, a, it was a characteristic in the 60s that you were adding something to social democracy, that of course social democracy was fundamental, but that you were going beyond social democracy. So the war on poverty spoke about uh, equal participation of the poor. So the key word, and Johnson spoke about this, it was part of the mainstream. So the key word was participation. It was a critique of social democracy. Of course we were going to redistribute wealth. Of course there was no other way forward. We were not going to go blindly uh, in, into uh, markets the way they had in the 1920s. It's almost unbelievable uh, that uh, they've been able to go back to, in the, in the United States and, and globally to a great extent, uh, forgetting all the lessons that uh, we know about how we can actually influence the development of markets and use the attack on inequality in order to strengthen growth and strengthen um, economies and, and uh, uh, so forth. But yes, that, um, you know, that fell out. It, it became, um, uh, you know, it, it, it was forgotten. And we had in the question that I guess Cindy is your name, um, said before about equality of uh, opportunity. What happened was we got after the 60s and 70s, we got meritocracy, which means that uh, you know no one would be stopped from getting into an elite because they were black or because they were Indian or because they were women or something like that. That's meritocracy. That's different from equality. What we need is equality, not just meritocracy. I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions, and I'm going to see if anybody else has some questions. Um, can, can I just start by asking you about your concept of crisis? Right. Um, because at, as I understand it, at the centre of your sort of view of history as opposed to America is the idea that it's not a sort of continuous extension of the application of values. It's right. a punctuated right. series of it's equilibrium. Good. Right. Well, so yeah. there's a kind of path dependency and in the middle there's moments or critical junctures where things are open. Right. And you, so, so the summary of what I want to say is really this: that there seem to be lots of missing crises in your account, and I want to just sort of illustrate that, and then ask you what you think that means for your general theory of history, right. if you like. I mean, the, the, the clearest example to me is that the 1890s and thereabouts simply aren't in your story, whereas the 1930s are. But of right. course, the 1890s for people who lived through it was way and away the biggest subjective crisis that anyone had experienced in right. lived memory. There was a huge upsurge. But of course it was, a, it was a failed crisis in a sense. Now, now what does that mean for your concept of crisis? Because when you described crisis you said these were periods where there was the need for new revisions of the agreed values. Right. Now subjectively people many people sought to renew values at that time but they failed to renew them in a sense. And so it sounds to me as though the ones that count as crises are the successful revisions. And I wonder why that is. Why don't the failed revision crises figure in your account? Well, I, I don't really think that the 1890s were a failed uh, revision of crisis. Uh, I, I mean, actually, the 1890s are you know fundamental uh, period for re-understanding um, American values because it, but what, what I'm trying to get at in the way I'm using uh, the term uh, crisis uh, are long-term shifts in, in, in both the social structure of the country and where, where people come to grips with a long-term problem 
And that, 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 that to me is their, their three. I mean, two, I think everybody has to agree about. And the first is slavery, and the second is industrial capitalism. And so the 1890s was actually in my talk, but very briefly I alluded to the populists and the progressives. Now, these were all the products of the 1890s. And all I'm really saying is not, not that the 1930s was uh, more important than the 1890s, but rather that the, 19, the shift that took place in the 1930s was the culmination of a kind of shift that actually I mean, starts much earlier. Uh, it really starts before the abolition of slavery when you start to get uh, the rise of industry in the United States and it's perceived as disruptive and you start to get which we uh, we had very regular recessions and depressions when the, well, why the 1890s was very important that's when it really was perceived that capitalism was structurally crisis prone and you, you really started to understand that in the 1890s and that's why they went into the Philippines and that's why they created a kind of imperialist system and uh, created the modern corporation as an attempt to deal with the crisis tendencies. And crisis tendencies are not something that the left deals with. They are something that, the, uh, that are being dealt with by the capitalist class, by the elites, uh, by the reformers. Uh, they're all dealing with these long-term tendencies toward crisis, like the crisis of industrial capitalism that we saw uh, in the 1890s. What the left does is say, really, at the heart of this is inequality, some form of inequality. But yeah, sure, I, I don't think the 1890s is really missing. I mean, I just, for his purposes of elucidating, in my book it's much more talked about, for purposes of elucidating a history, I have to, you know, I have to isolate uh, moments. It's the same thing with the slavery crisis. It's not a crisis of the 1850s. It was a crisis at the time of the Constitution. It just wasn't perceived as a crisis. And in the same way, I think we're living through a crisis now, and it's becoming increasingly clear that we don't really know what it is. Uh, but that, that's my concept of, uh, that's the way I'm using the term crisis, but of course we can use it in many different ways. And just quickly, my second question is about sort of where you start your story. I mean, you seem implicitly to start the story in the wake of the American Revolution, but the United States was founded well before that, and as a social and cultural historian, one might have thought that, you know, 1603 or, or the founding of Massachusetts or something would be... I mean, after all, cultural values were there long before. And so I just wonder why that is. Is, is, is the left not got a story before uh, the American Revolution? Well, yeah, I mean, I did mention the, the British Empire, the decentralized character of the British Empire that, you know, we're, uh, we're uh, heir to. Uh, and um, yeah, sure, there is a story, but I mean, just basically uh, what I was trying to say about, how, I mean, the United States was not really founded uh, in 1603 or uh, 1620, 1607 or whatever. I mean, it really was founded uh, in uh, the 1780s uh, with the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. And, and there is a story, and I don't think it's an incorrect story, uh, that that's really the founding of America and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, the revolution with Great Britain, that is uh, really, that's the story Gordon Wood and many American historians tell. And I don't think that it's incorrect. Uh, but I think that there's a second story. Just like uh, if you think about an individual, there could be one biography and then there'd be another biography that you look at that maybe is a little, a little darker or may, maybe more centered on the conflicts and, and the difficulties. And that's the same as for the United States. And I think there's a second story that really begins with the Civil War. 
Um, and it's a story of a country that is based on slavery and that is internally very divided, uh, that is not just, you know, a kind of smooth running extension of liberty. And, and that's a true story, too. And what I'm trying to do is, 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 is put the two stories together. But sure, there's a lot of things that go back to the, go back to the English, go back to other roots, go back to Africa. There's a million uh, streams that fe feed into who we are. And I, I wanted to say something about internationalism. I think it was, it was Sally Alexander who mentioned, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, that I hadn't mentioned about internationalism. To me, that was one of the most profound things about the New Left. Well, you, know, so it just, you, you know, it's just like the common sense of middle class uh, society is to look down on the left and, you know, and, and ridicule it and uh, so forth. And I, I just think it's jejune. I just think it's, it's so wrong. Um, you know, one of the things was the, the so-called third worldism, and of course there were exaggerations and mistakes and so forth. But I mean, I think that was one of the deepest things about uh, about the '60s was really becoming aware of what was going on in Vietnam and how it was unbearable. And we've lost that in the United States. We have a mercenary army, you know, and we, we fight wars without really being sensitive to the fact that, as the abolitionists said, all men are brothers. Thanks. Uh, can I just get an idea? I, I think we'll just take uh, the three in a row, and if you can just answer them all. You mean so gather that, them? Gather them. Okay. Yeah. So the, the gentleman at the back, then this gentleman here, and um, Robin. Oh, Robin. Sorry, who? Uh, my question is very simple. Uh, what do you think about letting America, letting America left movement? Will they affect or influence the America left future? Because in letting America, they um, very popular left movement in this 10 years. What do you think will they affect the America new left movement? Thank okay. you. I understand. Okay, and now the second gentleman's with the beige coat. I just wanted to mention one, should we say, contextual point, looking at the world as a whole. One of the things that's clearly happening is that, let's call it the West, America and its allies and so on, is no longer is losing control over what happens in the whole world. There's no longer what could draw a sort of parallel with, well, what happened to Britain. We lost an empire, didn't we? Decolonization and all that. That's, um, I think, um, well, part of the context okay. of what's going on in the world. Yeah, evidently there was someone over here. Um, yes, this gentleman. Yeah, um, just one question. Uh, number one, the, uh, the um, occupied Wall Street. It's one thing I think they have done. Uh, where, like, the American people, the majority of the American people have been living in, like, a false consciousness for quite a few years. They've opened up the whole idea of what is capitalism is all about. Now, for me, capitalism, you know, take financial capitalism today or industrial capitalism, these are all forms of capitalism that have moved on. Now, in the old days, you know, you would fight with mass movements. Today, the fight is more anarchic. It's people, you know, you know actually, in a way, opting out of capitalism because to have a socialist system, just like capitalism takes forms, You've got to have all different types of socialism. You know, that, that might mean autonomous groups, etc., etc. And I, I think that's the only way forward. But uh, the other thing is that um, I would say one of the biggest problems of America was this sort of um, all men are equal 
you know, this that was in the statutory books or whatever. It was just the words, you understand? Right. You, know, you know what I mean? It never happened. You know, they, they went there. The Indians wasn't equal. You're, the only equality in America is if you're in the Bohemian group and you're practicing socialism. So you meet capitalisms from different areas and you meet there so you can trust each other and you can work out. And the biggest thing that's come out of the last sort of year is the 1%. Right. People are now asking, the 1% who owns the means right. of production. Right. Okay, now we'll just, um, uh, Rob, Robin Blackburn well, and... Uh, Robin, why not, can you hold your question? And this was quite a bit and then... Well, I, I would, oh, you wanted to well we have to stop at the appointed hour. Ah, so see. you will have okay, to be on, selective Robin. in go your on. answers. Yeah. So. Okay, I'll be selective. Yeah. Uh, well, that was an absolutely tremendous uh, lecture, I Thank think, you so um, much, Eli. There's a lot a, of your thought in it, uh, as you Gives know. us a lot to think about. Uh, I, I just wanted to c come back with uh, 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 some queries, uh, really. And uh, one is, uh, could one add on the crisis in the British imperial system in the 1760s and 1770s, and then wouldn't Tom Paine really be... I mean, somehow I feel... Uh, he did represent a left, and uh, uh, there was even elements of anti-slavery, but also he had an astonishingly ambitious program, if you think about it, yep. in the rights of man and um, so forth. The, the second point is, and it would link to including Paine or seeing him as a precursor anyway, and that is, uh, maybe it picks up on something already been mentioned, but there does seem, whereas the European left has been very much inside the system, uh, or at least has been for a lot of the post-war period. I think it was probably different before the Second World War. Uh, but the, uh, really the American left uh, uh, is sort of polarized against the system, albeit in the name of the equality, which is in the, it's not in the Constitution, I think I'm right in saying, it's in, in the Declaration. So right. it's, it's the Declaration that gives the clue there. Uh, and. Um, uh, uh, because the abolitionists, I mean, they did directly say that the Constitution is a covenant, they burnt it. A covenant with hell. And they burnt it. They burnt it. <laughs> so so they, they couldn't have been more radical and unpatriotic in a sense, yeah. although they were deeply patriotic in another sense, perhaps. Uh, and in the, uh, 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 there would be a little more difficulty about the New Deal, but actually the Communist Party... Uh, is a very awkward fact and it wasn't that large but it did have 60 or 80,000 members and it was, it did give a degree of a left to the 1930s uh, uh, a bit more than the technocratic very, uh, and then finally the new left obviously many currents in the new left were somewhat anarchistic and uh, again the state uh, right. and, uh, so I just wonder whether that is an essential element of the left defined uh, in the way you have. Yeah, I mean, uh, these are all uh, really wonderful, uh, wonderful questions, and and I do see that we're up against the the time, so I'll really go uh, quickly um, through them. Uh, starting uh, with with Robbins, I mean, it's not true that the left in the United States has always been against the system. I mean, they were celebrated during the Civil War. You know, they couldn't believe that the abolitionists had just become the heroes of the time. They they, they were so used to being against the system, they just couldn't believe that they had become the mainstream. And, and the New York Times and so forth would comment on the abolitionist conventions, how different it was because they were had been so 
against the system, and that was also true uh, in the 1930s. I mean, the New, the, uh, New Deal was populated with leftists of various sorts, and, uh, so not technocrats, but socialists and communists. And the first thing that MacArthur did when we occupied uh, Japan in 1945 is let the communists uh, out of uh, jail because they had been the anti-war, the anti-militarist force in uh, in Japan. And it was the New Deal uh, that was you know, doing the occupation of Japan. So it's not exactly true. And Tom Paine uh, is an incredible uh, figure, and there is a transatlantic uh, left, uh, certainly in the anti-slavery. That's why I really do think, and I'm very influenced by Robin's work here, I really do think the origins of the left globally is, w is with the struggle against slavery and not with uh, industrial capitalism. I, I mean, I think that is, a f I don't make that point in the paper, but I think that that's a fundamental point. But I do think there's a radical difference, Tom Paine notwithstanding, between the American Revolution um, and the uh, French Revolution, and certainly the American revolutionaries thought that. They did not support the French Revolution. They did not support revolution in that sense. They said it was a defensive revolution. It was a defense of the rights of Englishmen that were long-established long rights, and that they thought what the French were doing of the idea of a revolution, which I think is a fundamental part of the left, which is to really create something new, create new values. They thought that was crazy uh, in the Amer in the um, American Revolution. I do agree uh, with uh, the gentleman who points out that Bohemians probably have the most egalitarian. They're not really the most egalitarian, but I mean, but there is a great deal of equality uh, in the um, in in the tradition of the artists and Bohemia and so forth. I mean, sexuality and and and, and so forth is so much, so important uh, to the whole issue of uh, of equality as it was. Uh, as it was raised uh, in the 60s. So it's a, it's a very important moment, but I don't agree that uh, the, the idea that all men are, so-called all men are created equal uh, has had no meaning in the United States. On the contrary, I mean, I think it's had an enormous amount of meaning, and I'm trying to point just to the role of the um, left in, in uh, bringing uh, about that meaning. I don't remember who raised the question about uh, capitalism and markets, but I would really draw a distinction between markets and, and capitalism. I mean, Broidel draws uh, this distinction. I mean, it's the it's markets are, are are great things. They are great human instrument. We're not going we're not we're not going to deal. We're not going to coordinate. Um, wealth and, and productivity on a global scale without the use of markets. And, and this was a huge mistake uh, not to understand. And markets also, they, they're based on greed and fear. And these are really basic human emotions that we have to build into our understanding of the future. But that doesn't mean that we have to have banks, predatory banks, uh, insurance companies, and so forth dominating, that's not, that's, that's not the market. That's uh, something else. So we need a more complicated uh, understanding of, uh, it's not a matter of, of, of uh, abolishing capitalism. And incidentally, this is not something that I'm bringing to the table in 2012. This was well understood in America in the 1930s and the 1910s and so forth. We needed a much more complicated understanding. That's what I talked about planning and so forth at, at that uh, uh, period. Somebody mentioned a comparison, two more points, I mean, a comparison uh, to uh, Britain at the end of the 19th century. And it is very true that Britain become, gives up on its industrial base and becomes a rentier nation in the 20th century. And something very similar happens to the United States in the 1970s and 80s. It becomes a rentier nation in investing throughout the world and it, you know, finance driven. So there is a lot of similarity uh, between what the British did uh, and how they sort of survived into the 20th century and the compromises they made and uh, what the United States has done uh, since the 1970s. 
And finally, somebody raised the uh, question of Latin America, and it's fantastically important, our relationship to the Spanish world and the Catholic world, uh, where, uh, where you do have uh, lefts in power, where you have a whole range of issues that are really fundamental to all of us, of indigenous rights and uh, uh, so forth. And Robin's work is a, is a good example, because he really, really sees the interconnections of the, so what we call the Americas, increasingly call the Americas, try to break out of the parochialism of the United States uh, idea. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Professor Zaretsky, not only for a wonderful talk, but for just fielding such an array of questions. Can I just remind the audience again that we do have Professor Zaretsky's book outside, and if you want to come up, he's, um, he's going to sit here and um, sign some copies. So thank you again.